We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Colossians. So if you will, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at two verses today. I generally kind of drive fast, if you've noticed. And now I'm going to put on the brakes for a few weeks, and we're going to look at two verses. Um... Tomorrow, men, if you didn't know, is Valentine's Day. Okay, and like most holidays, there are expectations, aren't there, right? There's like the the trifecta of expectations for Valentine's Day, right? You've got flowers, dinner, chocolate. Now, when I grew up, there was another gift, right? This gift was like Cupid's kryptonite. If you uh, wielded this gift right, you could have a girl's heart just crumble in your hands. Okay. This gift is a thing called a mixtape. Some of you know what I'm talking about, okay? You would create a mixtape with some of your favorite songs. You would give it to a girl. And oh my goodness. You had to be careful with this. This was like pure power, okay? Okay. Now, is love that easy, right? Is love as easy as just pushing play? Like, is love just like, you know, putting some famous love songs together on a tape for some of you, a CD or Spotify for this generation? Obviously not. Of course not. Love is not that easy. Love is far more complicated than that, right? As it relates to love, talk is cheap. You could talk a big game about love, but if it's not backed up in behavior, we all intuitively know that's not love. Uh, If you remember from last week, we talked about seeking the things above, putting on Christ in our lives. And so what Paul does now is he says, okay, now as you seek the things above, as you put on Christ, as you put on the the sort of the, the thing that binds all these virtues together, which is love, We see that in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, as you do this, Paul now slows down and says, now I want to apply this this whole idea of putting on Christ and putting on love. I want to apply them to three different areas of life. Marriage, parenting, and then the broader social order. So today we are going to just slow down and look at two verses, verse 18 and 19, and think through what does it look like to put on Christ, put on love as it relates to our marriages. Now, uh, we're going to be talking about marriage. These two verses are about marriage. But if you're not married, I really do believe that there is something in these two verses for you as well. So don't just walk out. So the big idea which should be behind me this morning is this. Marriage is an opportunity to reflect the nature of Christ. We're going to see that men and women do this in distinct ways, but both in a Christ-honoring, gospel-saturated way. So I'm going to read these two verses, and then we'll look at verse 18 and then verse 19. So... Verse 18, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, 
love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This, this past week, I was in Minneapolis. It was below zero, all right? If you've ever experienced that, if you ever walked outside when it's that cold, it feels like the wind is trying to steal your soul, okay? I'm pretty sure J.K. Rowling invented Dementors in visiting Minneapolis, okay? It was miserable. And so I walked outside, and then I came in, and I opened up my Bible, and I was thinking through, okay, what am I going to preach on this Sunday? And I read it, and that icy coldness just like, you know, filled my heart. And I thought, well, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Now, now, now I didn't feel that like, oh, this is an intense text, because it is an intense text. But in all honesty, because as I was reading it, a flood of emotions came over me over the last 15 years of marriage. So, so I've promised something to myself, that I will not cry in this sermon, okay? So if I do, I have failed. Luckily, my wife's not here, okay? If I would see her at any point, I'd be undone. So first, what we want to consider is the Christ-reflecting wife. Now, when I was pastoring in a college town, uh, every once in a while there was like this area in the university in which anyone, it was like the free speech area, right? Most public schools, public universities have this. And so every once in a while there was a Christian who would bring a box and he would stand on that box and he would begin preaching. Imagine if that person was preaching this text. I mean, could you think of a, of a text more kind of contra-cultural, more offensive to our culture than this text? Well, we might think that, but, but in many ways, what is maybe on the surface, why, what we might maybe push against this text, or, or maybe the words that are like flash words in our minds, I, I promise you this, that the words in these two verses that were maybe so controversial in our culture were not the words that were controversial in Paul's day. In Paul's day, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, there was a vastly different culture than the culture we live in today. So what we see in verse 18 all the way down to chapter 4, verse 1, these are what we might call household codes, right? And these were very, very normal. Aristotle wrote household codes. These were basically kind of um, descriptions of expectations for family life and society life, right? Right, right? These were like self-help, how to live the good life in society. The expectations for what a good citizen, a good marriage, a good family looks like. But as I want to point out, Paul's description in the New Testament, right, his Christ-exalting household codes, he flips the cultural script. So let's look at verse 18 once again. So wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. So marriage in Paul's day was different than today, right? Marriage did not look like the romantic comedies that we love and cherish I mean, even Romeo and Juliet, that's like 1,500 years later. That, that whole idea of, of, of the feelings of love and that I fall in love and then I get married, that's not exactly how marriage worked in the first century. Marriage was largely a means of convenience. And so women, and particularly wives, were completely kind of secluded in society. 
that their lives were filled, uh, were filled basically with servitude and chastity to their husbands. While a husband, and here's where the double standard came in, the husband could go out and have a harem of women for his pleasure and delight, and that was completely culturally appropriate. And so nearly all of the privileges belonged to the husband and the man, and nearly all of the duties and expectations were on the wife and the woman. So so in many ways, what is shocking uh, on these two verses are not that there's some expectations for the wives. That would have been culturally expected, right? That's what's shocking to us, but it wouldn't have been uh, shocking in Paul's day. What really is shocking is that there are any duties at all for the man, for the husband. So if I could put it this way, if you think of this section, the bullseye, it's not on the wife. The bullseye really is on the the husband in this text. So, there's a word. I'm guessing you saw it when I read it multiple times. And the word is submit. All right? We're going to talk about it. There's no minefields here, right? This is not going to be awkward at all, okay? Now, before I explain what submit is, I think it's important what I say, and I'm going to take a while to do this. I want to explain what submission in marriage is not, using this text and some others. So submission does not mean in marriage that a wife is less than her husband. Paul would go on in Galatians to say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So so wives are not less than their husbands. They are image bearers, they are co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing. But then notice that that this is not a general command for women. This is a specific command and calling for wives. Did you notice that this is, there's a specificity to this? It says, wives submit to your husband or their husbands. So this is not just general. Wives are not called to submit to all husbands, but there's a particularity to this calling. Submission also does not mean that a wife is a doormat. It doesn't mean that she has no opinions. It doesn't mean that her merit or voice should be silenced. Actually, actually, f- far from that, and we see that in uh, verse 19, to, to silence uh, is an act of not just cruelty, it's, a, it's, a, it's forbidden in verse 19 for a husband to do. So it does not mean that. Uh, submission also, it's not just a duty, it's not just a, a dull obligation or duty. Paul here in this one verse in verse 18, he roots this imperative with a motivation. Did you see it there? He says, submit because, why? It's fitting to the Lord. So what is the underlying motivation of submission? The underlying motivation is the Lord. And here, I think he's not, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying basically, as the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the Father's will, and you see that kind of perfectly in the garden, don't you, right? As you see the the Son's submission to the Father, you see, the son was fitted for that, well, so the wife is fitted for that ministry. So submission is fitted for the wife just as it was fitted for Christ. But then lastly, I just want to point out one more, that submission is not 
involuntary. So, so positively, submission is always voluntary. Next week, Lord willing, and then the week after that, we're going to talk about parenting and then the larger society. And the word that's used there is, and we see it in verse 20 and then in verse 22, the word there is obey, a different word. Here we have submit, which is a word that involves a voluntary action of the will and heart. Years ago, a friend told me this story. He was, he was a pastor, and uh, a, a man in his congregation came to him for some counsel. And so this man came to his pastor because he was having this, this, uh, this fight, this fight that could not be resolved. Some of you know what that's like, right? You have a marital disagreement, and it's a stalemate. Like, you cannot come together on it. And so this man said that when he was talking to his wife, and they were disagreeing, he said, you need to submit to me or else. And so he went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, what is the or else? And his pastor said, you're an idiot. There is no or else. I think he said it nicer than that. That's just my paraphrase of it. Right? The, the moment a husband reaches down and tries to grab his authority card and throw down the word submit, the whole idea crumbles. That's not what submission is. It's always a voluntary action of the feminine heart in response to her husband. But many ways, what what, what I'm trying to get at is, which is the big idea in these two verses, is that submission is nothing less than a mirror, a ministry and a mirror of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't this what the gospel is? Isn't, Isn't the gospel Jesus Christ's voluntary submission to the Father's will to die for sinners? That is the gospel. Jesus in the garden is, knows the plan. The plan's before him. He knows that he's about to die on a Roman cross. And he voluntarily submits to the plan and dies to reconcile sinners to the Father. That's the gospel. And so the act of submission is always voluntary in the same way that Christ's voluntary death was also a, a glorious reminder of the gospel. Now, I, I say that to say that submission isn't easy. We, we, it wasn't in Jesus. Jesus had blood-soaked tears, didn't he? No, submission isn't easy. But it is a fitted garment. A, it's a fitted garment of feminine glory, which mirrors Christ in some wonderfully distinct ways. Now, that, that, that said, I just want to give a caveat. I, I would be, it would be pastoral malpractice if I didn't say that there are lots of reasons why a wife should not submit to her husband. Especially if there's a calling for her to sin or if it's in the context of abuse. Acts 5 tells us at the end of the day that we must obey God rather than man. And sometimes that man that we're called to not obey and instead God is even your own husband. So so if you find yourself in a marriage where there's abuse, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, or verbal, that, that is a sin that your husband has done. And I would just encourage you to bring it to the light, to, to talk to a, a friend, 
maybe a female friend of yours. We would love to, as elders, talk with you, meet you, and process that with you, but, but it is not sinful for you to disobey your husband in that way in the context of abuse. So that's what submission is not. Let me summarize what submission is in a sentence. So submission is not that, but it is the Christ-like voluntary honoring of your husband as God's appointed head over you. Submission is the Christ-like voluntary honoring of your husband as God's appointed head over you. Now, before we get into the particulars of this and some application, I just want to stand back and say, okay, all right, right? Okay, we're, we're talking about wives, but I just said this is also applicable to all of us because here's the point is that the idea of submission and the idea of submitting, it's not just for wives. All of us are called to submit. So Romans 13 says, submit to the governing authorities. Hebrews 13 says, submit to your leaders as ones who will have to give an account. Right? Matthew 18 says, submit to the church. And then James 4, kind of the ultimate submission, says, submit yourselves to God, to the Lord. So, so it's not just, not just wives, right? All of us in many contexts are called to submit. We are called to lovingly and willfully and voluntarily submit to these various things that God has sovereignly placed over us. All of us have. And I think that one of the best and greatest ways we can live this out, we can learn what it looks like to grow in understanding what godly authority looks like and how we can have a disposition of the heart to submit to them. I think the best way to learn it is in the context of relationships in general, but particularly within the local church. Um, I've never told this story publicly uh, that, that I'm aware of, but um, you may not be aware of, but when I came and I was candidating at this church to be the next senior pastor, I was also candidating at another church. Okay? Uh, hopefully I wasn't cheating on either church. Um, and so I was candidating and, and applying, and, and this had been a long process, and there's a lot to this, um, at a church where I grew up in Spokane. And I came to Christ after I left Spokane, And I had always wanted to go back to Spokane and preach the gospel to my people. It's just always been a heart. I'd always be on the, I'd be like driving through my neighborhood when I'd visit my parents and I would just be weeping. And so I just always felt this, this calling back to Spokane. And so there was this opportunity and I was candidating at this church and I was excited about the opportunity as I was also simultaneously candidating here at this church. And I was open to, to what, God was doing, and so I was trying to make a decision that was best for our family, but I also knew that I wasn't just making a decision on myself or my family. I was a member of Hinson Baptist Church in Portland, and they were sending me, they were commissioning me, and so they needed to speak into this as well. And so I was just open, I said, what, what, what do you guys think? I mean, one, two, or neither of them. And so one elder grabbed me, and he looked me straight in the face one day, and he had his reasons, and it was a very long conversation, and he said, whatever you do, don't go to Spokane. And it was crushing in one sense. And yet, and I promise you, I am not exaggerating. This is no hyperbole. There hasn't been a day I've regretted that decision. 
It was hard, you know, to, to say, okay, I'm going to submit to these elders as those who have to give an account for me. Oh, but I'm so grateful that I listened to their wise counsel and that I came here. I really do think that one of the best things for all of us as we think through what it looks like to submit, that is played out in so many ways, in so many decisions, in so many ministries, in so many contexts within the local church. So whatever season you're in, right? Married, not married, wherever you live, it's actually a wonderful season for you to put on the loving attribute of submission and honor the institutes the institutions that God has sovereignly placed over us. It's an opportunity to mirror the gospel, right? As Christ submitted to the Father's will, we can mirror the gospel as we submit in various aspects of our lives. Now, with that said, let, let me go back to marriage. So what does submission look like in marriage? Well, let, let me first just say this, that submission... A wife submitting to her husband is always a vulnerable thing to do. It's always an act of faith. And the reason is because there is no, other than Jesus Christ, there is no sinless man. Okay, so, so, so if the, the idea is, well, when my husband sins less, then I will submit. Well, that probably may not ever happen. All men, just like all women, are sinners. And not only that, we have to sort of be careful to say, okay, so what does this look like? Because there is, there's the principle of submission, but then the cultural application of it can be different, right? So so what a marriage looks like in Afghanistan, I promise you it's going to look different than what it looks like in America, right? There are different cultural differences. I I learned this marrying my wife, because she's an Italian family, and and I just realized that loud voices and, and yelling back and forth between, you know, marriage, that's like a normal thing. And I grew up German, and you just kind of repressed your feelings, all right? Okay, so, 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 so there's a cultural component to this. But, but I really do think submission is far more than an action or a behavior. It's a posture of the heart. And I think if we really want to know what does submission look like, I really do think the best way we can kind of, un, kind of step back from all the cultural trappings of it and look at uh, the practical nature of submission, I think we just got to look at Christ. So all Christians are called to submit to Christ, to submit themselves in Christ in trust, in love, and with joy. So I think the feminine submission in marriage is as much a posture of the heart than it is an action of the will. It's a disposition to your husband that trusts him is joyful in him and believes the best in him as he leads and initiates with you. So I think what might be most helpful isn't that I tell you stories from my failure in my own marriage, right? You just need to take some premarital counseling with me to find that out, right? I think what's be more helpful if I diagnostically just asked you some questions. So here are a few questions to consider this week. And I promise you, the men aren't going to get, the husbands are not going to get off too. So some questions are coming for you as well. So here are some questions for your consideration. If you're married, do you appreciate your husband? 
And does he know that? Do you admire your husband's strengths even if they are covered by a collage of weaknesses? Do you praise your husband's attempts at providing and protecting you? When was the last time you sought to encourage him? When you sin against him, do you make it a practice to ask him for your forgiveness? Now, we could ask lots more questions, but, but regardless of how you ask or answer those questions, I, I know this, because this is why it was really hard to preach this sermon, because I just saw 15 years of some failures in my own marriage. It's never too late to start. Submission is the glorious and good and joy-filled opportunity to reflect an aspect of the gospel to your husband and to the world. It's an opportunity to give your husband an undeserved grace. That's what submission is. It is an undeserved grace to an undeserving sinner. And isn't that the gospel? So that's the Christ-reflecting wife. Now let's look at the Christ-reflecting husband. So go there to verse 19. Paul now writes, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So you see there, side by side, there's a positive command, love, and there's a negative command, don't be harsh. Now, there's lots of words to describe love in your Greek New Testament, right? Lots of Greek words to describe love. But but, but here, it's, the the word here is not a a call to passionate love. It's, It's not Valentine's love. It's not even friendship love, although both of those are important and good things and God-given gifts. But the word here is the word love that reflects the idea of covenantal, faithful love. Unceasing, pursuing love. Now, that's striking in Paul's day, as I said earlier. right? In a day in which you married just for convenience, love is the thing you had on the side. Paul now puts love, faithful love, covenantal love, loyal love, pursuing love at the center of marriage. This is radical. Now, we're a little bit different if we were to apply it to our culture because we put love in the middle of all marriage, right? We say you fall in love and then you get married. That's how we play it out. So I think in one sense, our love isn't, you know, uh, the, the corrective isn't what it was in Paul's age. But I think our love is, is much more like, oh, when you feel it, you know it. And so we fall in and out of love. Right? My, my wife recently made me watch this movie. And I found out about an hour in that it was a two hours of a musical love story. And I had to sit through this two hours of songs. And then they broke up at the end. And I was so mad. I was mad for a week that I suffered through it. And then there wasn't even a happy ending. No payoff. They fell in love, and then they fell out of love within like five minutes. And they did it in song. That's our culture, isn't it, right? We fall in love, we fall out of love. And here we have faithful love, covenantal love, loyal love, pursuing love, an initiating type of love. And that's what Paul says that husbands are called to do. Now, what does this love look like? Well, there's a sort of mirror twin that Paul writes in Ephesians 5, which kind of flushes out this idea 
of what love looks like in the context of marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 25, we read this. I'm going to read it, so just listen in. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in a splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Did you see that? Paul says, what what does love look like? It looks like Christ's love for the church. Christ loved the church. He sacrificed for the church. He washed the church. And in the same way, right, there's an analogy here. Husbands, you should love your wives in imitation of Christ's love for the church. A husband should move heaven and earth and sometimes hell itself in his pursuit of his wife. He should do everything short of sin in order to create the environment for his wife to blossom in Christ. That's the idea here. Now, that doesn't mean that a husband is like Superman, right? He's not perfect. Every husband is fallen. And yet, this is the calling. This is the calling and purpose of being a husband. It's to steward your wife and to make her blossom in Christ. It's to nurture her and to pursue her and encourage her and to love her and to help her to grow up into maturity in Christ in your interactions with her. So I'll put it this way. When you get married, basically your marriage vows, God says to a a husband, I'm going to give you this woman for a few decades. Steward her. I want her back more glorious and radiant in Christ than when I first gave her to you. That's the purpose of marriage. So love isn't just a feeling. It's nothing short of the loving initiation of Christ. And it, it, I'll put it this way, no, no. It's not a feeling, it is. As Christ initiates and pursues the church, so husband should initiate and pursue his wife. That's how a man mirrors the gospel. He mirrors the gospel in his love, right? Remember John uh, 3.16, you're going to see it today if you watch the Super Bowl, right? Inevitably, someone's going to hold up a sign, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how a husband displays the gospel in his marriage, by loving her and helping her mature in Christ's likeness. Now, this is hard, isn't it? It's hard to love and pursue our spouses sometimes. And yet Paul doesn't just say, he doesn't just give this positive command. I think he knows husbands enough to also give a negative command. And says, okay, love her and simultaneously, kind of the opposite side of the coin here, don't be harsh with her. Now, why the second command? There could be many reasons. It could be, well, husbands and men in general are more critical or harsh. Maybe. Maybe, maybe they're more tempted to be rude because that's the idea here. It's rude, critical, unbearing, impatience. That's the idea here of don't be harsh. Or maybe it's because harshness sometimes is the natural manifestation in 
marriage as it relates to men. Because I really do think that this is how it works, right? There's sort of a crazy cycle. A husband might feel unloved. A husband might feel disrespected. A husband might feel uh, uncared for. And so what they do is they, in turn, take those feelings and interact harshly. And then you could think the crazy cycle, and then what happens next, right? The wife feels the harshness of that, and so what does she not want to do? Well, she doesn't want to love and encourage, and you get this crazy cycle. And here's Paul saying, you've got to break the crazy cycle. Even if you feel disrespected, husbands don't retaliate with harshness. Retaliate with love. But in some ways, I think the biggest reason for why this is here is kind of what I've been trying to say this whole time is that the marriage is supposed to mirror the gospel. And just think about it. Is Christ in the gospel harsh to sinners? Is Christ in the gospel harsh to his bride? No. He loves his bride. So for a husband to be harsh with his bride is not only sinful, it's sub-Christian. It's, it's not an imitation of the gospel. So husbands, you should lead your wives. You should initiate with your wives. You should pursue your wives. You should love your wives in such a way that it is a delight for her to take her life and faithfully put it in your hands. Your treatment of her should garner a delightful joy in your guys' interactions. Now, this is hard because I think in one sense, men are allergic to love sometimes. Which is kind of funny when you think about it because when you date, I was thinking about this, when a man dates a woman, he does a lot of things to woo her, right? He puts on extra deodorant. He saves up and pays for that dinner he can't afford. He does all these sorts of things. He puts on his best clothing, brushes his teeth, he avoids the awkward conversations, right? He painfully holds in his farts at dinner. <laughs> he does everything in order to secure the wife, and then he gets married and thinks sometimes, okay, I pursued, I initiated, I won. I can now sit back and enjoy the fruits of marriage. No wife wants to hear that. Marriage is just the beginning of a lifelong pursuit of a husband with his wife. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, as Christ pursued the church. Love your wife in that way. Christ forgives us. Husbands, forgive your wife. Christ initiates with us. Christ pursues us. Christ encourages our spiritual good. Christ has hard conversations with us, right? One of the things about being a, um, being a son and daughter of King Jesus is that we are disciplined. Oh, husbands, have hard conversations with your wife. Don't stonewall her. So as I did with the wives, I think what's best is to just ask some diagnostic questions. So here are my questions for husbands. Do, do you cherish your wife? Are you creating seasons in which you are opening up your heart to her 
and getting to know in a deeper way her own heart? Do you share your dreams and fears and disappointments with her and you listen to her fears and dreams and disappointments? Are you faithful to her? Are your eyes faithful to her? Maybe one more. Are you creating a a home and an environment and a context in which your wife is growing spiritually? Now, like the other one, I'm sure there could be more questions. And if you have more questions, what this looks like, well, I think that's what we're making sense of that. We're living out the application of what it looks like to have healthy marriages. And every season is an opportunity to repent and ask for forgiveness and start anew. So let me end with sort of this. Some of you might have a wonderful God-glorifying marriage. Not a perfect marriage, but a good one. Others of you might not be married and want to be married. Or others of you might have a marriage of want. The constant reality of wanting a marriage that you don't have. Whatever season you find yourself in, whether you've been married a year or 50 years, it is an opportunity in how you interact with your spouse to imitate Christ in the humble submission to him and the loving, non-harsh pursuing of her. you got to put these two things together, right? It's not just women you do this, men. No, no, it's women and men. When, when women and men interact in this way, it is this perfect synergy, this perfect harmony of glory. This is not duty. There is a delight when this happens. Husbands who love and cherish and pursue their wives and then wives who submit and put their trust and faith in him to lead and protect them. It is a wonderful thing. It is a scary thing. It is a wonderful, delightful gift as well. So start small. Start small with repentance. Maybe that's where you're at. Start with repentance and forgiveness Start with filling your heart with God's grace in the gospel and then build your marriage on grace. Neither spouse deserves your grace in one sense. But the most happy and joy-filled marriages are always one built on grace. I could give you story after story to that reality. So whatever season you're in, think through how you can more faithfully mirror an aspect of the gospel, not only to your husband, but to your family, to your community, and to the world. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we, we thank you for new beginnings. We thank you that your grace is, and your mercy is new and fresh every morning. We, we pray, Lord, that we would grow and mature in our families and in our marriages and then in our entire family. We pray, Lord, that all of us would know what it looks like to, 
to, to better have a, a posture of submission, particularly and most certainly to you, Lord. That, that your word, when it speaks, we would listen and joyfully obey. Let your word be a lamp unto our life. We thank you for this church. I pray for the men and women in this church that you would encourage them and that in all things that you might point them to the hope of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.